What kind of church is this? There are a few ways you could answer that. You could say a Reformed Baptist church, Covenant Reformed Baptist church, a relatively small church, you might say. There's not hundreds of us. A new church, you might say. We started in 2017. All of these would be correct. There are many ways that you could describe this church, many descriptors that you could use. And one descriptor that I want to press upon you today is that we need to be the kind of church that takes both holiness and grace seriously. We need to be the kind of church that takes both holiness and grace seriously. There are churches that seem to take holiness very seriously. They are very strict. They are very grave. Very rigid. But it feels like no one there may be forgiven if they take a misstep. It feels in some churches that profess to take holiness very seriously, that sinners are not welcome. Simon the Pharisee is allowed, if I might allude back to last week's sermon, but the woman of the city, who was a sinner, she is not allowed to come in and wash Jesus' feet with her tears and dry his feet with her hair, because that would be scandalous. It seems that these churches take holiness very seriously. But it is manifest upon a closer examination that they really don't take grace very seriously at all. Some churches, on the other hand, seem to value grace. They are very affirming, very encouraging, very reassuring. You never hear anything about sin. You never hear anything about your own failures, let alone anyone else's, maybe only the bigots who might presume to correct another. You hear about their failures. But in our context, no one points a finger at anyone else. These churches are very reassuring, very, very encouraging, very, very affirming. No one in their midst sins. Oh, they make mistakes, to be sure. But nobody really sins and rebels against God. Sin is excused. Sin is rationalized. We're all broken and sinful, the line goes. Let him who is without sin cast the first stone becomes the all-prevailing mantra in these sorts of churches. And so no one is confronted, no one is challenged, no one is held accountable, and anyone who tries to introduce these sorts of things is stigmatized as, you know what, a legalist. We want to be here at Covenant Reformed Baptist Church, and we must be, if we are to be conformed to the pattern of Scripture. A church that avoids both extremes, holiness without grace, or grace without holiness. We must be a church that takes holiness very seriously, and we must be a church that takes grace equally seriously. We really want to follow Jesus. We really want to obey Him. We really want to submit to Him. We want to believe what He taught us personally. 
and through the apostles and prophets and the writings that have been preserved for us. We want to do things in our personal life and in the church in the way that He commanded. Isn't this, at the end of the day, just what holiness is? Doing the things that Christ has commanded us and refraining from the things that He hasn't? A part of me that He has prohibited? And along with these things, we want to value and practice the grace that Christ came to bring us in the gospel. Even as we try to obey Him and submit to Him and do things in our individual lives and in the church, in the way that He has prescribed for us, we want to do so within the context and the framework of the grace that He also came to bring us alongside His commands. Someone has said that Christians are among the despicable few groups throughout human history that tend to shoot their wounded. So you could imagine in a military situation, in a war, a team going in to rescue a wounded soldier behind enemy lines or a trapped soldier behind enemy lines. And we see the nobility and the valor of such an act. And if we were watching a war movie in which somebody gets wounded and his group turns to him and says, well, now you're dead weight. We can't take you with us. And they shoot him. We would recognize that to be a despicable act. We don't want to, even as we do strive to obey Christ Jesus and submit to him, We don't want to shoot our wounded. We believe that no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. That no one is too far gone. There is no sin so grievous that Christ's blood is impotent to wash it away. And so, we love God and we love each other by prizing both holiness and grace. We need to be the kind of church that takes holiness very seriously and the kind of church that takes grace very seriously. And we have the opportunity over the next couple of weeks and then the ensuing months and years after that to demonstrate the seriousness with which we take holiness and grace. You see, there's presently a situation in the church that calls for us to practice corrective church discipline. And I'm not going to share the details this morning, but that's what our members meeting is about on Wednesday night. I've asked all of the members of our church to prioritize attendance, if at all possible. The meeting will begin promptly at 7 o'clock and will finish promptly by 9. But it's in view of this that I'm preaching on church discipline this morning. We've talked about it before. But it's important that the biblical teaching on church discipline is fresh in our minds going into Wednesday night. So we'll review the subject of church discipline this morning. But first let us review an important principle of biblical interpretation. It is this. We are supposed to make logical deductions from the explicit texts of Scripture, the explicit statements of Scripture. You hear people sometimes saying, chapter and verse, brother. 
show me the chapter and verse in disputing about whatever it is that is the theological discussion at hand. And at first, this sounds like a very biblical objection. After all, the person objecting is appealing to the Bible. So it seems at first glance like a very biblical objection. But it's actually not very biblical at all. The reason is because Christ expects us to make logical deductions from the explicit statements of Scripture. Now, I want, you, I want to remind you of the passage where Jesus is speaking with the Sadducees. And they ask him, <clears throat> A woman was married to a man who died. And then his brother took her as his wife. And he also died. And then the other brother took her as his wife, and so on. And all seven brothers had her as their wife. In the resurrection, whose wife will she be? And the Sadducees put this forward to Jesus as an argument against the resurrection. In other words, it was a reductio ad absurdum, a re- reducing it to absurdity. That it, It's so absurd to consider that there could be a resurrection because of the supposedly insurmountable problems it would raise. Like, who is this lady going to be married to in the afterlife? And what does Jesus say? He says, you're wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Now, as to the power of God, he just means this is actually not as insurmountable of a difficulty as you might think. God who created all things from nothing is surely able to resolve your riddle. But as to you know not the scriptures, Jesus says... It's evident from the passage about the bush, the burning bush, that there is an afterlife, that there is a resurrection. Because in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 6, God says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Jesus says, he's not the God of the dead, but of the living You are very wrong. Now consider that. Jesus is not only asserting that Exodus chapter 3 and verse 6 teaches a resurrection. He's also asserting that the Sadducees should have understood that. Not only is an implication of Exodus chapter 3 and verse 6 that there is a resurrection. But the Sadducees should have drawn out that implication. What this means, and if you remember the scene about the burning bush, God says nothing to Moses explicitly about a resurrection. But Jesus uses Exodus 3.6 as a proof text for proving the resurrection to the, Pharise- to the Sadducees. What this means is that we are responsible not only for what the scripture explicitly says, but we are responsible for deducing correct conclusions from what the scripture explicitly says. And so, the imaginary brother who says, show me the chapter and the verse. If we went to Exodus chapter 3 and verse 6 and said, well, here's the chapter and the verse, he might say, no, that verse doesn't teach that. But Jesus would say, yes, it does. So bear that in mind. That's not our main point this morning. So I'm going to move on from there. 
I don't want to belabor the point, but since we're making some deductions this morning and trying to synthesize and harmonize what does the Bible teach about church discipline, I want to reassure each of you at the outset that this procedure of making deductions based on what the scripture explicitly says is warranted, demanded even, by Christ himself. So let's turn now to actually consider the subject of church discipline. Church discipline takes two forms, formative and corrective. An example of formative church discipline is found in Ephesians 4.16, where it states that the whole body grows only when each part is working properly. The idea here is that there is a practice of body life, we might say. The analogy is with the human body. There is a practice of body life. A discipline of body life, which results in the greater health and purity of the church. Now, an analogy might be helpful here. Just as an athlete expects each part of his body to function properly, and trains each part of his body, teaches, disciplines, forms each part of his body to work properly... So in the church, each part of the body is trained, taught, formed, disciplined to work properly. By way of contrast, if an athlete neglects training, his body will not be disciplined, but undisciplined. And therefore unfit for the sort of use which he intends to put it to. Likewise, if a church neglects to shame, pardon me, not shame, shape and form and sculpt and tone its members, so to speak, then the church body will be not disciplined, but undisciplined. And it will be unfit for the sort of use that Christ intends it to be put to. And so formative church discipline is basically positive. It's the forming its members to be what they ought to be. This is why it's called formative discipline. Training and disciplining its members to be what they ought to be. This should be happening literally all the time in the church. It's not like, oh, it's time for some formative church discipline. It's actually just the manner of a church. A church can be a more disciplined church or a less disciplined church in its ordinary way of doing things, its ordinary manner of doing things. But whatever the degree, every church should be disciplining its members all the time in the way that an athlete is disciplining the members of its body to become what they ought to be. It's basically the essential work of the church toward its members. We, alongside every other disciplined church, expect you to be here on Sundays. We expect you to be reading your Bible and praying throughout the week. We expect you to be in meaningful relationships with one another and so on and so forth. We can multiply the things that we just expect on a normal basis. Nobody's in trouble. It's just part of our ongoing, the discipline of living in a community like this where these things are expected of you. It's a disciplined community in that sense. That's the sense in which we mean church discipline when we're talking about formative. If you're not part of this church, you can be as undisciplined as you want, 
and you know we won't say anything to you but joining here you're joining yourself to a discipline of life certain expectations all of these disciplines or this system of discipline forms you to be an ever increasingly mature and godly Christian corrective church discipline on the other hand is concerned with correcting a member who is not being formed as he or she ought to be into the image of Christ it's what a church does when formative discipline isn't working as it should someone has said that corrective church discipline is like a body's immune system you don't notice it on you know the normal day to day it's not a perfect analogy because we have an immune system even when it's not you know engaged the way it is when we get a cold or something but when there's a problem that arises in the church that is outside the scope of the normal bodily processes, the immune system activates to address the problem in the body. The key text on corrective church discipline is found in Matthew chapter 18. In Matthew 18:15 to 17, we read that in a matter of sin between brothers, the first step is simply for one to approach another and seek to work it out. Go and tell him his fault is the instruction. Note that it says, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. And the discipline process then is presumed to have ended. Note well at this juncture that not all church discipline is as serious and grave as the most extreme sort. Sometimes it's literally just a conversation between brothers or sisters in the church where sin is pointed out, repentance happens, the process is over, correction occurred, no problem. That there is a spectrum is important to highlight. Church discipline is not synonymous with the public exercise of excommunication, which we'll talk about in a moment. That there is a spectrum is important to highlight. Corrective church discipline may simply just be a brother or a sister just bringing an instance of sin to another. Repentance happens and the process is over. However, Matthew 18 does go on to describe the most extreme sort of church discipline, putting someone out of the church. Look at Matthew 18 and verse 17. If he refuses to listen... Even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So corrective church discipline may be anywhere along the spectrum, from a personal conversation on the one hand, all the way to public removal from the church. Anywhere along the spectrum. Those are the two types. Note now as we move on from that overview of both forms, formative and corrective. That both forms are apostolically mandated. We looked already at Ephesians 4.16, which is sort of like the big picture. Each part is expected to work properly. But you could actually literally, literally find hundreds of examples of the apostolic expectation of Christians to be engaged, disciplined in their exercise of Christianity. Literally every imperative in the New Testament. Right? So, 
teach and one and teach and admonish one another, um, letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teach and admonish one another, singing to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. There's one example, right? Encourage one another, right? Exhort one another, like all the one another's. Literally, our formative church discipline. These are the expectations that are placed upon Christians as they seek to become more and more Christ-like. This is the sort of things that they are to engage in. And this is the sort of service that they are to provide one for another in the context of church life. And so I picked Ephesians 4.16 because it's sort of an overview. That there's this expectation that each part is going to work properly. But all of the imperatives are expectations placed upon Christians to live a disciplined life. So formative church discipline is apostolically mandated. You can't say, well, I'd prefer not to be formed. I would prefer to live an undisciplined Christian life. That option is not really open to you. Because the apostle lays down very clearly that you must live a disciplined life in the context of other believers who are also living a disciplined life as we follow Christ together. Now, as we think about the mandate for corrective church discipline, we already have, of course, Jesus' words on church discipline in Matthew chapter 18. Look also at 1 Corinthians 5, which I read earlier. And I read that passage earlier, not because it's our primary text this morning, but because it's good to have in our mind as we consider this theme. Let me just highlight a couple of things. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 5, You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Verse 7, cleanse out the old leaven. And then verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with, etc., etc., Verse 11, now I am writing to you not to associate with, etc., etc. In verse 12, there's the implication that it is those inside the church whom we are to judge. And in verse 13, purge the evil person from among you. So there's however many, I didn't count as I went, five or six. Very clear instructions to the church in Corinth to do this. So obviously the church at Corinth was not at liberty to just say, well... Thanks for the suggestion, but we'd rather not. Obviously, this is a mandate as opposed to a suggestion. The difference between the two being that a suggestion is optional and a mandate is not optional. Now, by extrapolation here, any church should do this under certain circumstances. Because the reasons that Paul gives are not unique to the Corinthian church in particular. Christ, our Passover lamb here at CRBC, has also been sacrificed. So, like the Corinthian church, we also should cleanse out the old leaven. We should take care that a little leaven doesn't leaven the whole lump. The principles in verses 12 and 16 that God judges outsiders, but the church is to judge insiders. That principle is still at play. It's still operative. And so, by extrapolation, it's not just the Corinthians who have a mandate 
to pursue corrective church discipline under certain circumstances is every church, including our church. And so what we see is that church discipline is apostolically mandated, formative and corrective. It is not okay for a church to say, we are just an undisciplined church. It's not okay to say, we just don't place expectations on our members. And it's not okay to say, we we just don't hold our members accountable. God holds them accountable. That's just not okay. Because we see very clearly in the scripture that Jesus and the apostles give us a mandate to be a disciplined church. And under certain circumstances to practice the necessary church discipline. Therefore, not to engage in formative and corrective discipline, at least in principle, is to disobey Christ, the head of the church. So at this point, some of you might say, great, go ahead, pastor, exercise discipline. We support you. But this is not what the scripture envisions. The next thing that we need to draw out here is that both forms are congregationally exercised. Let me refer you back to that passage I alluded to a moment ago from memory, which I think I bungled up a little bit. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now notice it didn't say, pastors, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing all the members of your churches in all wisdom, singing to them psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts, pastors, to God. Rather, this is in a letter written to the whole Colossian church. And what does it say? Let the word of Christ dwell in y'all richly. You all teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. You all should sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs as a subset of teaching and admonishing one another. When we sing in church, we're not just singing for God, we're singing also for one another. We're lending our amen to the truth of the words in order that other believers may take comfort and encouragement and edification from the words that they also are singing. We're exerting, we might say, a kind of positive peer pressure on one another as we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That, hey, these things are true. Listen to, listen to my voice singing them as well, and his voice and her voice and us together. Hey, brother, sister, believe these things. Imbibe these things. Go to the bank on these things because they're true. It's part of our ministry to one another, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And so that's just one example of formative discipline is not placed on like pastors form everybody around you. It's all of you form one another. Put the expectations on one another to live a disciplined life being formed into the character of Christ. And then back to 1 Corinthians 5 as we consider the congregational responsibility for corrective church discipline. Now, if there ever was a situation in which someone would just pull rank and just say, I unilaterally decide that this is what we're going to do, it would be the Apostle Paul. 
presumably, or another one of the apostles. But what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 5? He gives leadership, but he says in 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 5, You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. You see, Paul's already made up his mind, and he's exercising his leadership gift in the church by way of instructing them what they ought to do. But he is also placing the responsibility on they themselves to actually do it. And so we have a situation here in which Paul doesn't just say, I have removed him. Be aware. Be informed. I have removed him. Paul says, this is what you ought to do. This is what would be the best thing to do. Now you do it. We see, therefore, that Church discipline, though it is led by the leaders of the church, it is exercised ultimately by the congregation itself. And so it's not just, go ahead, pastor, exercise discipline, we support you. It's your responsibility to consider the situation at hand, to seek to apply the biblical principles and to act with the responsibility that you have as church members towards your fellow church member in the matter at hand. Now, I want to speak in this last section of the sermon, which is not going to be brief, but it is the last section. Lest I give you false hope. I want to speak to you in this last section about the aims of church discipline. Formative church discipline and early stages of corrective church discipline are aimed at helping regenerate members grow. Romans chapter 8 and verse 28 says, Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So listen, if you are a Christian, God's plan for you is to be conformed to the image of His Son. We know that. Now membership in a properly disciplined church is one of the means that God uses to conform us to the image of His Son. So He doesn't just predestine us to be conformed to the image of His Son and then just leave us to just go about our lives as we see fit, with no helps, with no aids, with no structure, with no guidance. He puts us in communities of Christians who are all predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. In order that participation in those communities might be a means which He uses to conform us to the image of his son. Now, this is not rocket science. Would you be more likely to be conformed to the image of Christ by getting permission from the owner at Popular to set up a tent in the back corner and live there? Or by being a member in a local church? You would still be the same person, whether in that context or whether in this context. But it's obvious that one of the contexts would serve you better in terms of being conformed to the image of Christ than the other. 
There are means that God uses to achieve His ends. Regularly being under the preaching, the teaching, the instruction from the pulpit that happens in a church that is well-disciplined helps you, benefits you. Regular attendance benefits you. It helps you. It is a means that God uses to conform you to the image of His Son. The edification that comes from the other elements of worship also. We talked about singing, prayer, participation in the sacraments. All of these things are means that God uses to help us be conformed to the image of His Son. He uses the formative discipline of the church, the structure, the disciplined life of the church to conform us to the image of His Son. And the early stages of corrective church discipline are likewise aimed at helping us grow. Admonishment from brothers and sisters who know us and love us. Again, remember the Matthew 18 spectrum. On the most extreme end, you have the removal from the church. Let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. But way before that, on the other end of the spectrum, you just have conversations. Go and tell him his fault. When we are in a church community where we're all expected to follow Christ, conversations happen organically, meaning that they're not just like, you know, Pastor John asked me to contact you about this situation. It's just like of my own volition. We're friends. We're brothers in Christ. We're sisters in Christ. We're family. I want to work this out with you. And those conversations are had. And the expectation is that the person who is approached about something like this doesn't just tuck tail and run to another church. But that there is an engagement with that early stage of corrective church discipline. And when a brother or sister listens to a correction, the the process is over. That's it. It's been, it's been resolved. There's no need to take it to another level of church discipline to move further along the spectrum. That's it. But that's aimed at helping us walk in a manner that is pleasing to God. So formative discipline and the early stages of corrective church discipline are aimed at helping regenerate members of the church grow. Those who are already new creations in Christ, who are already believing in Him, who are trying to walk in a manner pleasing to Him. Formative church discipline and the early stages of corrective church discipline are aimed at helping you grow. The last stage of corrective church discipline, so now we're on the the end of the spectrum, we're talking about removal from the church, has several aims of its own. One, the salvation of the individual undergoing discipline. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 5. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Why? So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. We'll talk about this more in a moment, but we're not out to get people. The goal here, the goal here is actually the salvation, even of the person who's under discipline. Maintaining the moral purity of the church as a whole. 
First Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 6 says, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? The metaphor there is that a little bit of sin, unchecked and undealt with, is going to spread. One, as we know that saying, right? One bad apple spoils the whole bunch. This is the idea here. Through the apostle, the Holy Spirit is saying that there is a tendency for people to become emboldened by unaddressed sin in the church. And so cleanse it out in order that the one bad apple, so to speak, may not spoil the whole bunch. And the other side of the coin as pertaining to this is outlined in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 20 where he's talking about the sins of elders and sometimes the need for a public rebuke. Paul writes to Timothy, As for those elders who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. So this tells us that it's okay. That would be somewhere in the middle, right? It's not putting him out of the church, but it's also not just having a private conversation. So that would be somewhere in the middle along the spectrum. But the principle that I want to draw from that is that it's okay to practice church discipline with a view to how it will affect the other people in the church. We don't want to let sin go unchecked, otherwise people might be emboldened to sin, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 6. And we do want to address it sternly enough in order that others may give consideration, as 1 Timothy 5 says, may stand in fear. So the salvation of the individual undergoing discipline, maintaining the moral purity of the church as a whole, and then another aim is gospel clarity to all who are watching. So the person himself or herself who is under discipline, all of the other people in the church, the members, the attendees, people outside the church, we're bringing gospel clarity to the situation. Galatians In Galatians chapter 2, in verse 14, Paul rebukes Peter publicly. So again, we're, we're not talking about removing Peter from the church, but we're also not just talking about a private conversation. So we're somewhere along the church discipline spectrum. Paul says, When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew... How can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So the issue here was that um, Peter was eating with the Jews and Gentiles together. Great. Ephesians talks about how the two are made one body through the cross of Christ. right? And so we no longer segregate ourselves as humans between Jews and Gentiles. Um, the way that it was actually mandated to some sense, in some sense and to some degree in the Old Testament to have that boundary line in place. That's done away with because of the work of Christ. And so Jews and Gentiles together are to worship together in the same church without reference to the fact that some are Jews and some are Gentiles. Peter was doing that. Great. But when some who are of the circumcision party, so some who who insisted on that line being maintained, came, then all of a sudden now Peter doesn't want to eat with the Gentiles. 
See the hypocrisy of that? And you see what that says about the gospel. It says that there are still those old boundary lines in place between Jews and Gentiles. Peter is lending credence to the idea that Christ has not brought Jews and Gentiles together in himself. And so Paul rebukes him publicly in order that it may be clarified. Right? He says, when I saw that his conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, Paul speaks publicly in order that it may be clarified that in Christ Jesus, Jews and Gentiles are now together in one body. Again, it's just an example, but the principle here is that when someone's conduct is not in step with the truth of the gospel, the gospel message is obscured, and we need to clarify the points that are being obscured by our action, by our discipline. So again, let me revisit something I said a few moments ago. Are we at liberty as God's people to refrain from being a disciplined church? either in the formative sense or the corrective sense. No. Jesus has not suggested to us that we be disciplined and that we correct erroneous doctrine and living. He, either through his apostles or directly himself, has mandated formative and corrective church discipline. Therefore, not to engage in formative and corrective discipline is to disobey Christ, the head of the church. So one way that we take holiness seriously is to take it seriously as Christ, take it, pardon me, one way that we take holiness seriously is to take it as seriously as Christ and exercise the church discipline that he has said is important for us to exercise in the church when necessary. I think we can easily see that church discipline is one way that we demonstrably value holiness. That's not, I don't think, a a real reach for us to see. However, the way that we practice church discipline ought to demonstrate that we likewise value grace. Remember I said at the beginning, we need to be a church that values both holiness and grace. First, there is the grace of church discipline. Church discipline itself is a grace. The only reason to view properly exercised church discipline negatively. Right? There's reason to view improperly exercised church discipline negatively. Valid reasons, right? If, let's say that you're being disciplined for something that's not even a biblical command. There's lots of valid reasons to reject that kind of church discipline. But listen, when it's exercised properly, the only reason to view it as a negative thing is if something else is more important to you than walking closely with Christ. Let me say that again because that's a very important concept. If church discipline is exercised properly, the only reason to view it as a negative thing is if something else is more important to you than walking closely with Christ. Can you see that if your ultimate aim is to walk closely with Christ and that's what you want more than anything else and Christ has said in His Word this is part of what that looks like. This is how the church needs to deal with sin in its midst. 
This is how the church needs to deal with an errant member. This is how the church needs to deal with me as an errant member. Then you're actually going to appreciate the process itself as a grace. As a help. Then there's the grace that is clarified by church discipline. And I touched on this a moment ago. Unchecked sin in the church obscures the gospel. Like Peter's sin of hypocritically withdrawing himself from the Gentile brothers. It obscured the fact that Christ had made one out of the two Jews and Gentiles. And that needed to be corrected. Other ways that sometimes the gospel needs to be clarified is that the gospel is not a license to sin. The gospel is not a get-out-of-jail-free card in Monopoly. If you view the gospel like that, you don't understand it properly. The gospel is good news that we don't have to be punished for our sin or live in it any longer. The gospel rescues us from sin's penalty and its power and eventually from its presence. Look, if you don't want to be free from sin... The gospel is not for you. If you don't want to be free from its power, if you don't want to be free from its presence, if a eternity where you have no access to the things that displease God but bring you great joy here and now doesn't sound appealing to you, listen, heaven's not for you. The gospel's not for you. But many people think of it this way, right? That it's a license. That I can just sin however much I want and then pray the sinner's prayer and I'm good to go. Practicing church discipline helps clarify. That's not the way it works. Helping people understand that you don't receive part of Jesus. You can't, you can't, you can't, you can't take, let's say me, you can't separate, I am the pastor of Covenant Reformed Baptist Church. You can't say, well, I, you know, I, I know John as the pastor of Covenant Baptist Church, but not as a Ritter's guide. You know, both are true. You can't like distinguish between aspects of me like that. And you can't with Jesus go, well, I'll have him as Savior, but not as Lord. It just doesn't work that way because he is Savior and Lord. He is objectively. And so it, you either have Jesus or you don't have Jesus. It's as simple as that. You're either rightly related to Him or you're not. And so practicing church discipline can help clarify a point like that for the people in the church, even for the watching world, that true biblical Christianity means placing faith in Christ Jesus and endeavoring 